This episode of The Truth includes strong language. I'm here with our associate producer, Nicole Hill. Hello, hello. Hi. And um, hi, Nicole. How are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing well. Everything's so normal. We're just talking like normal people talk. Casual. We always casually <laughs> talk on mic. It's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so did I ever tell you about the time uh, when we recorded with David Keckner for uh, David Ebert's piece, The Haves? I don't think you have. Well, I'm going to play you a clip. This is from the recording session. Uh, this is uh, David Keckner is asking David Ebert, the writer, about how to play his character. Am I hopeful or uh, I know this is his number or I don't know if he's got an assistant or um, am I calling him at home? Uh, is it pretty yeah. neutral like I don't want to scare him away? I mean, I, I've wondered how long have I lo- been looking for him? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, just just so you know, David, this is based on a true story of what no happened shit. to me. This is what happened to me. Um, Holy fuck. Yeah, found out I had 13 like grown no. adult half-brothers and sisters when I was an adult. Oh, my uh, God. Okay, so, so the guy that called you. The guy that called me, yes. Um, was like what? Was it pretty neutral? No, no. He He's like a little cocky. Um, oh. Oh, because I'm going to blow your mind. And yes, yes. Yeah, like I've been waiting. I've known what I've wanted to say to you for years. Yes, you don't and know the candy you have in store. That's definitely the vibe. <laughs> got you, got you. Got you. Oh, I love that it, because it is such a wild story. And to have it be true and to find that out in the moment would blow my mind as well. I, I just can't even. When I was listening, I was like, does this happen right. to people? I know. And it's all true. He, he based the story on himself. And uh, David Koechner couldn't get over that. He kept coming back to it. Um, we'd record a couple scenes and then he'd, he'd come back and he'd say. So, David, this is true? Yeah. Yeah. What's the, what's the story with your pops? Um, Besides he, uh, handsome with a huge one, Mary. Uh, it, you kind of you kind of got it actually. Um, he like set up franchises. Uh, like he would marry a woman and and have a couple kids, and then within like four or five years they'd be divorced. Um, and, and he's like like the script indicates a bad guy, uh, uh-huh. and hasn't ever been in my life. Um, oh, dude, I'm sorry. Uh, no, not. I mean, uh, I, I actually, as the script also indicates, like, I'm blessed for it. Like, yeah. wasn't a good person to have around. And actually, that's one of the big hangups of all the people that I did meet through this process is that he was around for them and, like, kind of oh. fucked them up a little bit. So um, what, why'd, your, why'd your dad keep doing it? So he has a, is he a narcissist? Is he a, yeah. is he a okay. Yeah, yeah. He's so very charming. It's all about him. And when, when they no longer feed or serve his desires or needs, he just keeps moving. Wow, that's like the best summation <laughs> I've ever heard of it, but that's exactly what it was. Wow, those are some good follow-up questions, too, because that's what you want to know. Like, why would someone do this? Why would you want to start this many families? Yeah, and there's so many things like that that you learn through doing the show or that come up through doing the show that people never get to hear. And so we wanted to take this episode to show people a few of those things, you know, take people behind the scenes of how we do our show, uh, play some tape we have that uh, normally we wouldn't be able to play for people. And later on in the show, we asked people on Twitter to send us their questions. And so we're going to answer a bunch of listener questions. And we'll also talk about money Ooh. and how much money we make and how much we spend and where all the money goes. Secrets. So it's an exciting, juicy episode of The Truth, all about how we make it. I'm Jonathan Mitchell. And after the break, it's a conversation with our writers, Lewis Kornfeld and Mary McDonald.
So I'm here with two of our writers, um, Lewis Kornfeld and Mary McDonald. Hello. Hi. And um, you've both written a lot of stories for the show. Um, I haven't counted, but have you guys counted? Um, I, I haven't counted. I think probably like eight or nine. Yeah. And Lewis, you've probably written like 30 or so, right? Yeah. I'm nowhere yeah. near Lewis. <laughs> I'm, pro I'm probably around 30, yeah. Yeah. Lewis and I started working together at the very beginning of the show, which was in 2012. And I'm curious, how have you seen the show evolve since it started? Um, well, it's evolved. the idea of the show has become a lot clearer. Um, you know, it, it, other than like developing its own tone and its own voice and its own style, I, I think in the early days of it, when there wasn't as much writing going on and it was more kind of talking about story ideas and improvising around it, it was a little bit more chaotic and a little bit harder to... Because a lot of the people in the first room weren't exactly writers. It was more improvisers than writers. So it was kind of people who could run with scenes but who didn't really have ideas for stories. So and when you guys started, it was like a cast almost? Yeah, it was like a cast of improvisers. And we'd the idea was that we'd um, come up with way like outlines structures that would work as stories that we could um kind of hang the improv on and it was always like the same eight or ten people yeah or or, or like a core group that that we would sort of then cast out of but um like the first story that we did like that was called interruptible and um and then we did a story called everybody scream like that is that the one with the bikes that's yeah the exercise bikes i like that one how old am I? Anybody know? Anybody know? How old is this body? Don't look at it. Eyes forward, elbows tight, butt down, keep it tight. How old am I? I don't know. How old am I? I... Don't look. Uh, 35. I'm 55. I'm 55. I'm 55! I'm never gonna die! And um, eventually, like, I think the whole thing kind of shifted in a really substantial way when Davey Gardner became involved mm -hmm. because we, we started working, we are kind of trying to solve a lot of the issues. Like, I think, I feel like the history of the show oftentimes in my mind is intertwined with trying to figure out how to work with writers. Yeah. It's not, a, it's not an easy show to write for. What, what makes it difficult? Well, I'm going to close my window because I got noise coming up here. Excuse me. Um, is it a pretty quick turnaround time, even though you're, you're writing an episode for for a couple of months, but it's still, I don't know how you feel, Mary, but every time we get to the end of a writing cycle, I always feel really crunched for time because there's still so many problems with the script to solve. Um, and because it's not, like every story is its own independent thing, it's not like you have like a, a constant set of characters where there's like a, like a Bible that you can follow and... and ease into it. It's like every single story that you work on, you have to kind of reinvent the wheel a little bit all over again. And they don't all like end up on the show. Sometimes there are stories that we actually go through the whole production process and then we end up just having to kill. Murder. And um, I think both of you have had that experience, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the one that you experienced, Lewis? Uh, I wrote a reincarnation story that I was never able to finish. That's right. Um, I think that was, yeah, that was the most recent one. But that's probably happened to me a couple of yeah. times. And Mary, you had one story about a character named Winona. Mm -hmm. who Whose favorite childhood book started talking to her. Rufus barked. And Rufus, too. 
We could all use a friend like that. But you have one, said Willow. You have me. What? Winona? Are you still there? Winona? Winnie! It's Willow! Willow Millow! I've come to help! So we've produced this story. We got all the actors together. We recorded it. I started sound designing it, only to discover that it wasn't really working. Um, But there's a lot of funny things in the story, and I want to play a scene for you a little bit later. But let me set it up first. Um, In the story, the main character's name is Winona. And as you just heard, her uh, audiobook character, Willow, starts talking to her. And Willow remembers all of the things that Winona loved and dreamed about doing as a child. And she can't understand uh, why she's not doing any of them. And so she takes it upon herself to... To try to force her to live those dreams and basically give up her current life. Yeah. And so that involves, like, booking a trip on a cruise because she wanted to be sail the seas when she was a kid. Mm-hmm. And she had a crush on this this kid named Harry, who has now grown up. To become as, a, a local he, dentist. <laughs> he's now a local dentist. And um, what happens I love that he's the, local and not like an internationally yeah. renowned dentist. No, 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 no. <laughs> he's just the guy she had a crush on in high school. Um, and, so, and so he shows up at her door and um, and her husband is there. And and so this 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 dentist is there, the husband is there, and Winona's there, and and they have this confrontation. And so I thought I'd play it for you guys because I think it's a a funny sequence. Connor was so funny. Yeah, Connor Ratliff is the dentist, and then also in this you'll hear uh, Ryan Carls as the husband, and Jessica Morgan as Winona. Okay, <laughs> is there something else going on here? I mean, first the cruise tickets, now this guy shows up. Dr. Harry Kingston, I own the dental practice up on Elm Street. Is this why you made all those dental appointments? I didn't make those dental appointments. Well, you really should, every six months or so. What's your insurance? Blue Cross. Uh, Andy, I swear, this wasn't me, it was Willow. Willow, this is not okay. Who is Willow? This little girl from an audiobook I used to listen to that's been stalking me through my phone. Well... It seems like this was some kind of misunderstanding, so I'm going to leave. I don't know if I should say this or not, but I feel like I have to. It's always better to seek preventative dental care rather than to wait for a problem. You don't get a third set of teeth. Did you write that, or was that his improv? Uh, I think a, a combo. I wrote the... It's always better to seek preventative dental care. <laughs> he improved. You don't get a third set of teeth, that's, if that's, I remember correctly. <laughs> that, that, those, are, those are both very funny lines. Yeah. How did you feel about that story not working out, Mary? Um, I think it made sense, kind of. I wish that it, it had worked out, because even just listening to you describe it, it feels like such a juicy idea. Mm. Um. But I think I remember that cycle feeling just very, not the other people's stories, but for me, the writing process in that cycle, just feeling very flat. Like I I wasn't finding it. And maybe it was something, just the timing of it wasn't right for me. I don't know. But um, um, I think it's an example of a story where the the premise sounds really fun, Mm -hmm. but... Mm -hmm. It didn't, the actual scenes, 
that was definitely the funniest scene um, of them, but also it maybe didn't have enough glue in it or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I will say one thing that it did do, which I try actively to ignore, is sometimes now when a story isn't going well early, I'm like, is this going to be another Winona? Like, should I just give up now? <laughs> like, I always have it in the back of my head that a story might be cut at the 11th hour. But it's kind of cool to have to just make your peace with that and be like, that keeps me returning back to the idea of, well, I'm going to write a story that I want to hear at the end of the day. And if I feel like I would like to listen to it, then at least I'll know that. Um, I talked about the Winona story to my therapist over several weeks. Oh, no. (laughs) At the time we were making it. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do about this story. Like, it's just not working and I don't know what to do. Yeah. (laughs) And he's like, well, what's the story about, you know? That's a really cool story. <laughs> yeah. I do think that the basic idea is cool, but also like a little triggering, like the idea that like something from your childhood could look at you and say like, I thought you were going to be cooler, basically. <laughs> what I'm hearing from it is it's kind of about the, you, we grow up and our dreams change, but there's some part of us that doesn't and continuously like pulls yeah. us back or, or throws us in the wrong direction trying to get us to live out a dead dream. Yeah, or like uh, like giving up on a, a dream that doesn't serve you without yeah. feeling like you're just giving up. Right. So on Twitter, we asked for questions from our audience, and we got one that I think uh, pertains to you guys. Uh, it's from at Lorna Mus, who I believe is the writer of the Fitzroy Diaries. Mm. Oh, cool. And she asks... Uh, how do you imagine your audience? What do you project onto them? Anything? Are you imagining the devoted ones or the cynical ones or the ones cleaning their house or going for walks or all or none of the above? Um, I'm writing for someone who I hope is listening really closely and listening for small things. Like a lot of my scripts, I'll like I'll write in where the pauses take place and those are usually deliberate it's not just a rhythm thing. It's like, that's where the character's thinking about something. And it's meant to, you're meant to feel the character thinking before they say something. And I'm writing for the person who's listening for those pauses and realizes that that's a, a thought taking place. Um, I don't write for the cynical ones. I don't, I don't think about the cynical ones. Because um, as far as I'm concerned, the cynical ones are going to hate it one way or the other. So I don't really, I can't yeah. waste too much energy worrying about it. Um, but I do also think a little bit about like the person cleaning their house, that you want to have something that pulls them in and makes them care immediately. But then you also have to have, not exactly like a showstopper, but you need to have something really cool somewhere in the story that hopefully makes them like stop folding laundry for a second to like replay the scene. Yeah. yeah. And what about you, Mary? Um, I don't know. I, I, I probably think of different people for different stories. I think a lot of times I'm thinking about character. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know how much I'm actually thinking about You're not the, thinking about the audience. But yeah. I do hope they enjoy it. <laughs> um I'm trying to if if it's a story with a where a character is like the reason that I came up with the idea, I'm just kind of letting them express themselves. Mm-hmm. Um there have been a couple stories where I um where like I hope the audience 
feels like the tenderness that the stories have and that like if they're feeling lonely, they make them feel better, I guess. Hmm. Um, Like the Curse of Numb was like a very personal story that was based on like my own experience. And I hope that like people going through similar experiences felt less like lonely listening to that story. Yeah. Oh my gosh, my umbrella. There you go. Their hands grazed each other's, creating a spark. And something inside her awoke from the dark. Yeah, I've never had an umbrella for more than a month. Yeah, I mean, they're so easy to lose. I think my record is five, maybe. (laughs) I'm Erin, by the way. It happened like magic as her name was spoken. The world came to life. The curse, it seemed, was broken. Erin. I'm Sammy. My feeling about it has always been, um, I, I, I know our audience is made up of lots and lots of different people. They're all different. They all have different tastes and, and experiences of life. Um, but if you imagine, you know, around them as a circle or a bubble or something that represents their tastes, and you sort of put them all on top of one another like a Venn diagram, that blob that's in the middle is basically me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like basically the the thing that all of everyone in our audience has in common is like are the things that I happen to like. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and that it's that really kind of connecting with that audience is about being able to trust my own tastes and things and 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 sort oh, of be be like kind of having like this zen of like how so do I really feel about this? Don't like a story. It's because that's the part of your personality that they don't like. <laughs> well, it's because I don't know. <laughs> it's probably because the the side of the side of them that's not like me doesn't mm-hmm. like. It's like, like when it. you're when you're meeting your friends' friends, and you're probably going to kind of like them, but you might not like them as much as you like your friend. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And sometimes they might not. You might not like them at all, and then they go find other friends, and that's fine. They can go yeah. listen to other shows. You yeah. Know. I do think that it is a trust thing. You have to trust the people who are who are working on the show and, and trust that they're going to take you someplace interesting. And that doesn't mean that you're going to love everything or that you should love everything. And, you know, if you don't like something, you should not like something. But if you don't like something, that shouldn't be like... You need to stop writing the show and change it completely to better serve what I like. It That's not... That's not what it is. It, it, you know, all you can do is do your best to kind of um, ask a question about things and and then present what comes up as you follow that question to its logical conclusion, and then that's what you share with people, and you hope that it connects. It's not going to connect with everybody, and it's not going to connect with everybody right now. But I mean, what else can you do? You, you can't be editing your stories in real time to to make everybody happy. Yeah, and I mean the thing that beauty of, of this structure of a show is that we are re- reinventing it every single episode mm-hmm. and have, or have the opportunity to do that. And so like the identity of the show, I don't think it's like we don't have like one agenda that we're following or one sort of idea about what the show is that we're kind of just, you know, sticking narrowly sticking to. It's like, we're just trying to re- make good stories, you know, it's, mm-hmm. and, and like, a good story, it's like an interesting premise that feels like it's got some meat on it 
and it has a satisfying conclusion that feels like you went someplace. Mm-hmm. And that's basically, if those things are there, then I'm like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so after the break, we are going to talk with our associate producer, Nicole Hill. We'll answer some listener questions and we'll talk a little bit about how the show is made and where all of our money comes from and where it goes and how much money we make. But first, uh, we have to make a little bit of money <laughs> by playing you this ad. Uh, The Truth is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. If you're struggling with relationships or having difficulty sleeping or difficulty meeting your goals, or if you're feeling anxious or stressed, BetterHelp counselors can listen and help. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. And our listeners get 10% off their first month of online therapy at betterhelp.com slash the truth. That's better com slash the truth. I'm here with Nicole Hill, our associate producer. Hello everyone. Welcome back. <laughs> and um so we just heard an ad for our show uh from for better help. Um and we also are in the middle of a fundraiser and people might be wondering, well if you have ads, uh why do you need me to donate money to our show? And um I wanted to talk a little bit about that a little bit later. But first, um, I wanted to get to know a little bit about you, Nicole. Mm. Um, So you just started working on the show in November, right? Right. Yeah. And so uh, tell me me what you were doing before and and how you got involved in the show. Sure. Okay. Well, before the show, I've always worked in fundraising. And um, right before the pandemic, I decided to take a chance on my dreams and uh, switch to working for an art nonprofit, a storytelling art nonprofit um, that put on live events. I went to work for them at the end of 2019. (laughs) And then 2020 hit, and that's the exact wrong thing to be doing. So... I got laid off along with everybody else, and uh, at that time, I just released my own podcast called The Secret Adventures of Black People, and it was, I mean, I'm not even, it's so inspired by the truth and by episodes of the truth that I'd heard, um, because all throughout the pandemic, I just, on my lunch break, I would go and listen to an episode of the truth and be like, I don't want to be in a pandemic anymore. Let me go on this journey with Jonathan Mitchell. So um, so I was a big, big fan. And that kind of inspired me and, and the work I did on the podcast. And then through releasing that, I was able to kind of get more jobs. And I started working on more podcasts. And then one day, um, I saw a posting for, for the truth. And I was like, well, whatever, I'll try. Who cares? I, I'm sure everybody's applying for that job. And yeah. then we talked and we got to like go back and forth on an episode. And I was like, I love it. <laughs> and, and, and so now that you're here and you kind of, you, you're, you see the whole process from beginning to end warts and all, mm-hmm. you see how the writer's room works and you see how the recording sessions work. You see basically everything. I see it all. So what have you learned about how the show is made. What didn't you expect? I didn't expect it to be, and I mean this in a, a super loving way, but I thought it was made through magic. I thought somebody <laughs> kind of had an idea. It was perfect. They wrote it down. I definitely thought a ton of people worked on the sound design and, and all of that. And it kind of all just came together through somebody being just like such an inspired artist um, and solo. But what was surprising is that it is so much of a group process mm-hmm. and it goes through iterations and iterations before it's ready to air. And yeah. that was very encouraging to me because I'm like, I don't know, I don't have a perfect idea right away. And I think the show has really helped me to feel more comfortable with working 
on a team to make something better. Yeah, it's a very collaborative show. Yes. Um, like even like the writing, you know, one writer gets credited, but but we have a group of writers who are all kind of like giving feedback on it and brainstorming. Right. And, and if there's if the writer's stuck on something, then we all pitch in and try to figure out how to how to fix that. Yeah, I've definitely incorporated that into the way that I work on things on my own now, where I'm like, I want a bunch of people giving me feedback and helping throughout. Was was the business side of the show surprising to you at all? Yes. I think just how much you would have to know about business when your interest is art is pretty surprising. And um, the fact that everyone is getting paid, I don't think I ever thought about whether or not the writers and the actors and anyone involved would be getting paid. Um, but I was kind of surprised by that, happily surprised, because uh, I feel like so many people in podcasting are asking their friends to do them a favor. Right. But these people are making a living off of writing, off of acting. And so to pay them only feels right and try to pay them, you know, fairly feels yeah. really and, good. And we're hard. making money from the show. So I feel like it's only fair to give them a, a piece of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think I think people might be surprised at how much money our show actually makes. I'm sure. Yes, that's true. And so, so I thought I'd break it down for everyone. Do it. This is stuff I usually don't talk about, but um, because we're asking for money in this fundraiser, I think it's only fair that we talk about where that money goes, why we would need it in the first place if we have ads, and um, most of the money we make comes funneled through Radiotopia. Uh, in the form of um, advertising revenue and fundraising revenue. Every month we get a deposit from Radiotopia that varies from month to month. It, sometimes it's as low as three or $4,000. Sometimes it's as high as like thirteen or $14,000. But usually the average month to month we've been getting lately is between nine and $10,000. So like around $9,500 a month mm-hmm. is how much our show takes in. Does that sound like a lot to you? It, well, it's hard to... When you talk about that variance, that is what really stands out to me. What what contributes to that variance? Uh, because some months we have ads and some months we don't. Some some months mm. we have... Some months we are all sold out on our ad... We call it ad inventory if we have space for an ad. So we have space for two ads at the beginning of the show and two ads in the middle of the show. And if all those are sold out, we'll get a, a bunch of money. Um, if If none of those are sold, and that's happened several times we won't get any money from ads and so it's entirely the only money we take in that month is from donations yeah so how how do we spend the money how does it get broken down so, okay so like i said we have about ninety five hundred dollars a month um so nicole gets uh for being the associate producer it's a half-time job it's 20 hours a week um and you get uh, two thousand dollars a month for that and then um we have two stories a month, and we pay each writer $1,500 per story. So two stories, that's $3,000. So we're up to $5,000. Uh, we pay the actors. Our actor budget for each story is $1,000 a story. So that's 2000 a month. So now we're up to $7,000. And so anything over that is money that I get paid. Or that just goes back into the, the show's bank so that we have money in case we don't have enough next month. You know, mm-hmm. so it's not a ton of money. <laughs> yeah. And what about the other expenses, like the cost of web hosting and promoting? How did those get covered? Right. And those all come out of that same same money. Um, 
actually, to be honest, the, the thing I spend the most, outside of that, the thing I spend the most on is uh, probably sound effects. I'm sure. I was like, I'm sure you are paying for some library yeah. that is... Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I buy a lot of sound effects. All right, so how many of the money, how much of the money that you get from Radiotopia comes from ads versus listener donations? What's that um, breakdown? So we get about uh, $2,500 a month in listener donations and between six dollars and $7,000 a month in ads. Wow. Sometimes more, sometimes less, but like I said, the ads vary. But the um, listener donations is fairly constant. And so if there's a month where we don't sell any ads, um, it's the listener donations that make it possible for me to pay Nicole and uh, cover our expenses that month. Right. So it, the listener donations are really what makes this sustainable because the ad market is so volatile. And are those donations going directly to the show or to Radiotopia? So Radiotopia, there's two ways you can donate. You can either donate directly to the show or you can donate to Radiotopia. If you listen to a lot of Radiotopia shows, I really recommend you you donate to the network because the network offers so much beyond just uh, handling money. They uh, provide a community of producers. All the other shows on the network are people who I know and we all, we all talk about what we're doing and give each other feedback. And then Radiotopia also helps us a lot with marketing mm -hmm. and getting spreading the word about the show. And how much oversight does Radiotopia have? Do they come in and say, oh, we want the story to look like this or we want the story to look like that? Is it like being a part of no. a corporation like that? They, they don't have any editorial control. It's all independent. Um, every show on Radiotopia is, con is in control of their own content. Um, it's, it's really, I'm the one who's in control of our content. <laughs> Yeah, and so if you if you don't like our show, ultimately I'm the one who 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 you should blame. <laughs> and if you like our show, then it's everyone else. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> what's your like favorite parts of the job? Because you you there are very very different very different sides of of the work that you have to do and different hats you have to wear. And I've always wondered like which what are your favorite in order? Well, I I mean I do all of those those different parts of the job. Cause I like all of them. I don't want to have to choose, <laughs> you know, like that's really why I do it. <laughs> so I like I love directing and I love sound designing and I love working with writers. So, but let's just say we looked at sound design, for example, what's your favorite part? What's your favorite part? And then what's the hardest part? Um, well, the most difficult is audience reaction scenes. Yes. Like, like anytime there's something in front of a, of a live studio audience, I have to put all those laughs and all those applause things and all those reactions. They all have to, it's like another character. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that's, that's my, I think that's the hardest. Yeah. What about, is there one kind of sound design thing that you just love doing? You love adding? Um, I love it when it's something I haven't done before. Hmm. I love it when it's like a fresh challenge that, um, I'm really curious about how it's going to work, you know. Do you remember the last time you got to do that? Um, well, the hum, the hum was an, was was a good example of one, because I had to design that hum, and I had this idea for doing it with multiphonics. From like, I had these samples of clarinet multiphonics, which is like blowing and f fingering and blowing in the instrument in such a way that it produces not just one frequency, but like a complex array of frequencies. Um, and usually people hear it as just being like 
like sounding like a duck quacking or something like that, you know. It's like sounds very, you know, you hear several, you know, if you can imagine a clarinet going, you know, that's, that's a multiphonic. So we have all these listener questions. Do you want to get yeah, into it? Yeah, let's do it. Um, so we have listener okay. questions. We asked, we put up a tweet and asked people on Twitter to send us their questions. Um, uh, we have a bunch. <laughs> Good. So our first one is from uh, at pleased to see you. The question is: Are the episodes written with particular actors in mind, or do you cast the actors after the script is written? Usually, we cast the actors after the script is written. Um, written with a particular actor in mind is very unusual. Yeah. Um, it ha- it has happened, but um. I don't know. I mean, you you involve a lot of the casting. I, mean. I think um, so. After we spend eight weeks working on a story, all of the people in the writers' room do have a sense of the characters, and so they'll actually make suggestions for who we who they see as as a potential you know somebody who could be really great, which is really cool and helpful because they understand yeah. what we're looking for. They and really they all get have it. different communities of performers that they're a part yes. of, and so exactly. it's like we're looking at lots of different groups of of communities of people. Yeah. Um, let's look at another question at Keely 76. I've gotten similar feelings from listening to the truth as I do from some ASMR videos. Mm. Were you always aware of the potential for sensory effect when producing the podcast? So any kind of ASMR effect that the show has is not intentional. <laughs> it's not something that I was like, we Jonathan, engineered. Are you doing that on the back end? Are you doing that? <laughs> But I, I'm, it makes me happy that people have physical reactions like that mm-hmm. to the work. That means, to me, that registers as we're doing something right. <laughs> All right, let's look at the next one. Um, Ed Katya and Katz writes, did you ever write something that seemed outlandish and unbelievable, but real life would beat you to it? There's a couple areas. The answer is yes. When we when we did this story about a hoarder called Don't Touch a Thing, we, we knew of an incident where a hoarder had a corpse in their house. Mm-hmm. But it turned out after we did the piece, we discovered it's actually pretty common. Is it really? <laughs> for hoarders to have dead corpses in their house. I mean, common enough that there's like, you know, a number of news stories from all over the world that that all, all talk about this kind of circumstance. And so, yeah, that's one. Whoa. Hoarders hoarding dead bodies. Human bodies, uh, not just like Like cats. a human body, like, uh. like their spouse died and they never moved the body. <sighs> yeah. Um, okay, let's go to the next one. Arthur Draconi. That's Democracy was adapted into a great short film, but do you wish to see any other episodes be adapted? Perhaps more short films or a streaming service anthology show or perhaps even a comic book anthology. Ooh, a comic book anthology. That sounds cool. That sounds yeah. cool. Yeah. I, I hadn't That'd thought of that. That'd be really cool. Yeah, we have a number of projects in development at the moment. Uh, we can't really talk about <laughs> them. But as soon as we can share them with you, we will. I mean, I love audio as a medium. I don't feel like any of our stories need to be adapted. I think they're perfectly fine the way they are. And um, it's also fun to explore other things. And... See what see what else we can do. 
Yeah, I was going to, that's, I'm glad you said that. I was going to ask you, I was curious, does it feel good to have, you know, things being developed and other opportunities or does it feel like, no, that I want this to just stay the way it is. I don't actually, I'm not looking for these other things. Well, there's money in other opportunities, to be honest. Right. Our show is expensive mm-hmm. to produce and so it could make it easier. I don't know. I, I'm not sort of precious about, I don't. If, if someone wants, if a filmmaker approaches me and wants to make a film out of a piece, if I'm able to let them do it, I don't have a problem with it because um, I, I, I like the idea that the show is inspiring other people to create things. Mm. That's a really satisfying um, development. And if, if they see something that I thought was just an audio idea, if they see something very v- visual that can be developed to become something really interesting and and they can get a lot of other people excited about that, then... Um, more power to them. Yeah. Um, okay, let's look at another question. This is from at Harvey Maine, and it says, uh, "Sorry to be a downer, but where does the truth stand in the PRX Radiotopia racism issue? The whole thing has gone very quiet. Have you seen any evidence of positive change? Has the truth changed? Mm-hmm. And would you consider leaving the Radiotopia network, like the Illusionist show did?" Well, that is a heavy question. That's a big one. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. It's a big one. Um, so when that all happened, that was really surprising and disappointing. Apparently there was um, someone who was working for PRX, not involved in Radiotopia side of it, but it was working more for the general company and um, had um, complaints of systemic racism in the company. Mm-hmm. And um, as, as far as Radiotopia is concerned, I think the biggest concern amongst the producers was um you know why isn't there more diversity on the network why why aren't there more shows by people of color you know this is something we've been talking about for years what's taking so long but but the upshot of it is that radiotopia is committed to um i think all the shows that they're planning on releasing over the next year or two are from producers who are people of color um, they have a, you know, they have this show called Radio Showcase, which they've re- sort of changed the name to uh, Radiotopia Presents, which does short series, like five or six episodes. And um, uh, a number of those are going to be rolling out over the next year. Uh, but that's what I know that they've been doing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. How do, you, how do you feel about their response, Nicole? Um, well, I know more about the PRX side and what PRX is doing than what Radiotopia is doing. I think it's a good point that last year we were hearing a lot kind of consistently and now we've heard way less. Um, and what I know is kind of the very hard, very unglamorous, very kind of time consuming behind the scenes work that has to be done. So unfortunately, I think that maybe not right away will you see a big, big, big change. But that's because there's so much work that has to be done behind the scenes to change cultures and to change systems and to really just make people aware of things that maybe previously they thought were okay. And now they are learning to unlearn some of the behaviors and some of the ways of thinking that were prevalent before. So I am encouraged by the work that I see people doing behind the scenes and the the ways in which I, I am seeing people be consistent and I'm hopeful that it will start translating even more beyond, you know, the showcase. It will just conti- we'll continue to see more diversity across yeah. the network. I think that will make will just be better, better for the stories, better for the audience, Absolutely. better for everyone. Absolutely, yeah. 
And I think one of the areas that we as a show can actually do is uh, hire more people of color, hire more writers of color, hire more actors of color. And that's mm-hmm. an area where, I, frankly, I feel like we could do a lot better. Mm-hmm. So um, if you're out there, if you're a writer and you're a person of color, please contact us and we'll put you on our next call for submissions. We keep a running list of, of writers and we'd love to add your name to the list. Go to our website and there's a contact button. Email us using the contact button and we'll put your name on the list. So Jonathan, this show is very time consuming. It's very unique and interesting, but it, it, it seems hard to do. Why, why is it so important to you to keep working on this show? I, th- I just think the medium is, is both incredibly rich and beautiful. It's, it's musical and it's an, it's emotionally engaging and it tells you a good story. And, um, I, I really like combining all of these elements and, and, and sort of tapping into people's imaginations and sort of, mm-hmm. it's, it's like you're painting on, in people's minds, you know, or something like that. It's, um, it's, it's so imaginative and so compelling. And, and the, the minute I started, it sort of occurred to me to even do this, I couldn't let go of that idea because it felt like there was so much possibility. So do you feel like you've done everything that you can with the show? Are there more things you want to try? Is there a lot more you want to do? I, I know. I mean, the answer is no, because I don't think I could ever satisfyingly do that. You know, that's sort of part of the thing about an ideal you have in your head is that it's, it's unattainable. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I have like this ideal in my head that I've maybe the show has gotten close, sort of close to there a few times, but um, you know, it's, it's not not close enough for me to to stop trying <laughs> and um i i just i guess i hear something in my head that i i feel like compelled to make this thing happen mm-hmm. <laughs> and i'm not exactly sure why i just <laughs> feel like it must happen <laughs> like this must <laughs> exist in the world yeah uh, and usually that's that's what we're looking for when we're choosing stories. Like this story must exist. Yeah. Um, and so we, we're just trying to make the world into the world that we wish existed. Mm. Well said. And don't forget about our fundraiser. We're having a fundraiser for Radiotopia. Please consider donating. Um, that money really does help keep us going. Uh, if you want to find out more, go to radiotopia.fm to donate. All right. Thank you, Nicole. No problem. And everyone else, we'll see you with a brand new story in two weeks. I'm Jonathan Mitchell. I'm Nicole Hill. And you have been hearing the truth. Radiotopia.